Thank you very much. Please take a seat. Oh, there you are. Ian can do it. I was struggling there. Thank you very much. That's right, exactly. And the right knob as well. Great. Well, a very good evening. And may I add my warm welcome to Ian's um, to you this evening. My name's Phil. Uh, I'm one of the ministers here. If you've got, uh, when you came in, you should have been given one of those little A5 sheets, and that might help you uh, guide you through this evening. On the back, you'll find some, some points and where we're heading. Um, feel free to use it or not, um, as will help you this evening. And if, you're, if, you're, uh, um, if you'd like, there are some little sheets at the back as well, give you some activities, some crosswords to do. Any ages are welcome to pick one of those up. If you didn't get one, they're on the clipboards at the back, and you'd be most welcome to grab one. Well, let me tell you about somebody who was 10 years old and a very peculiar interest he had. Is anybody 10 years old here? Any, just a, anybody? Maybe a few, yeah, okay, one back there, maybe, maybe a couple of others who are too shy to put your hands up. Oh, quite nearly, yeah, okay, that's all right. Well, this boy's name was Torleaf, okay, Torleaf. And um, he enjoyed studying chickens. That's what he loved to do. His dad had chickens, and he, from about the age of 10, he studied chickens. And that's what he did. And he discovered that all chickens were pecked, but they were not all pecked equally. And here's how he put it, and I love this quote. Um, it really made me laugh when I found it. He said this, Anyone who thinks the inhabitants of a chicken yard are thoughtless, happy creatures with a daily life of undisturbed pleasure is thoroughly mistaken. A grave seriousness lies over the chicken yard. <laughs> what a great quote. A grave seriousness lies over the chicken yard. Of course, the grave seriousness that he describes was a hierarchy amongst the chickens a hierarchy of dominance whereby some chickens were put in their place by other chickens who bullied them and asserted their dominance over them by pecking them. And so we get the phrase, the pecking order. The pecking order. Believe it or not, his study, Torleaf, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his surname, um, it spawned a century-long academic discipline. He, he said that quote in 1922 in what's called dominance hierarchy studies. There you go. And that phrase, the, the pecking order, has transferred from talking about chickens, hasn't it, to talking about humans as well and human behavior. And speaking as a former teacher and having spent many long hours on the school playground, I can confirm that that, is well, and that behavior is well and truly alive and, uh, shall we say, pecking in society today. It's there. And believe it or not, I think we see it in this passage that we had read this evening in Mark's Gospel too. For Jesus here spends time with two different groups of people, doesn't he? The Nazarenes, people from his hometown. We don't get the place mentioned here in Mark's Gospel, but we're told, 6 verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. His hometown was, was Nazareth. That's where it was. So we get the Nazarenes. That's one group of people. And then we get his disciples from verse 7 onwards, the 12 men that he had gathered to him and called him to follow, follow him. And here's where that, that idea of dominance or, or the pecking order comes in, because one group of people look down on Jesus as the local boy. And the other group of people, well, they look up to Jesus, and they listen to him, and they go out with faith in him, empowered to do and speak as he had been doing. Now, when I speak about dominance and power and hierarchy, it's not without reason, is it, that we're conditioned in our culture to be suspicious of that, to be suspicious of anyone who tries to assert or claim power or dominance over us. 
But if we were careful readers of Mark's gospel, and we've spent many weeks, haven't we, in this gospel over the, over the summer, we would find that we needn't have that fear with Jesus. Because Jesus is someone who looks after those who no one else cares for. He's somebody who will even, as we read on in Mark's gospel, give up his life as a ransom for many, use his power to serve. As he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the question for us this evening. Where is Jesus in our lives? Where is Jesus in your life? Is he above you? Do you let him tell you what to do and how to do it? Or is he actually beneath you or alongside you? Do you only call on him when you need him? To switch metaphors, if your life were a car, where's Jesus? Is he left back at home while you strike out on your journey, doing your thing? Is he in the boot, shouting muffled instructions which you occasionally hear? Is he your trusted co-pilot, giving you reliable instructions and directions, but never actually holding the steering wheel? Or is he in the driving seat of your life, calling the shots, trusted with everything? We drove uh, to France this summer, and on a few times on that long journey, I was reminded of the responsibility of driving with precious cargo in the back. And I wonder, have you trusted Jesus to drive the car of your life? Or do you really just pretend he's in charge when it's you, you, you you're the one who's calling the shots? There's the challenge for us to think about this evening as we look at these two groups of people, and we're going to look at them in turn, and we'll look first in order at the Nazarenes who looked down on Jesus. The Nazarenes looked down on Jesus. You see, the time sp Jesus spends in Nazareth comes as a, as to a, something of a surprise to us as we read Mark's Gospel, because with some notable exceptions in the previous chapters that we've had over the summer, we've been looking at them, haven't we? Chapters and chapters, verses and verses, Jesus has swept all before him, really. There have been healings and exorcisms, there have been teaching and parables, there has been huge crowds, and, crucially, faith, belief. And all of this activity has been based around the Lake of Galilee. I thought I'd show you a map, because sometimes it's helpful to see. This reminds us that this is a real place, and these were real people in real time. Let me just show you the map of the movements of Jesus in the first six chapters of Mark's Gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 9, he comes from Nazareth. There should be a little red arrow coming up there. There's Nazareth. And he comes from Nazareth, and he goes to the Jordan to be baptized. So you can, we don't know exactly where on the Jordan, but there's the Jordan there. You can get another little red dot there. There should be Tim. In chapter 1 and verse 21, he heads to Capernaum via Galilee. Okay, so we should have a couple of arrows coming up there where he heals the paralyzed man and he seems to set up his mission HQ because from Capernaum, he carries out a lot of the rest of his ministry that we've read of up to now in Mark chapter 6. He goes out to desolate places, an arrow out into the desolate places. He goes out by the sea. He goes out by the grain fields. There should be a few arrows popping up now, Tim, if you keep pressing along. He goes out to the synagogue. He goes out and teaches on the lake, sitting in a boat. He goes up a mountain and calls the 12 to him. Then they travel across the lake and Jesus calms the storm while they're crossing the lake to the other side, do you remember, where he encounters the demoniac man and then he goes back again across the lake to Capernaum where he heals Jairus' daughter and the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years 
And now, in 6 verse 1, he goes away from this hive of activity and relative renown and fame. He goes back to his hometown, quite a long way away, relatively speaking, back to Nazareth. So you see, I, I hope this map's in some, something helpful to you, uh, because it must be, mustn't it, that although undoubtedly news about Jesus would have been heard back in his hometown, and undoubtedly some from the town would have traveled, indeed, as Mark tells us, many from the area did, to hear him down by the lake, nonetheless, the Nazarenes are a little bit out of the loop. They haven't quite got the most recent news, the latest notification about everything that Jesus has been doing and saying. And certainly that's how it seems, isn't it? When, when Jesus comes back to the town in verse 2, when the Sabbath came, so presumably he's been there a few days already in relative uh, anonymity, we, we presume. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. I don't know if you've ever been surprised when someone has stood up to speak publicly, and you just don't expect that kind of a voice from that kind of a person. Or maybe it's the context. I know I've spoken to many people who've been on a speed awareness course. I won't tell you if any of them are sitting before me now. And they t almost without exception, they tell me they're surprised at the quality of what they're hearing. They're expecting to be bored, and actually the person delivering it, they're really engaging, and the material is really interesting. They're amazed. And maybe we get a sense of that from what the, the, pe the reaction of the Nazarenes here in these verses. Jesus stands up to teach, and many people are amazed. However, we quickly discover, don't we, that their amazement isn't particularly positive. Instead, it seems more negative. It seems that rather than being, wow, I've learned so much, it's more like, I didn't expect that. It seems, wow, how did Jesus, the, the son of Mary, the carpenter, you know, the guy who fixed my chair uh, and made our window frame and, and chiseled that notch there in the wall? I mean, how did he come up with that? That, that wisdom, those miracles? Indeed, Mark tells us they took offense at him. You see at the end of verse 3 there? They took offense at him. Has a sense of being scandalized. Really? Him? Maybe they're offended because Jesus hadn't first shared these things with them. The people who he'd worked amongst as a carpenter for decades. He'd been off in Galilee, down by the lake. Maybe they're offended because... They thought Jesus had been keeping quiet all, year, all these years when he'd been chiseling and fixing and making tools and small talk, small talk and instead he could have shared this wisdom with them. Jesus has his own take on the situation, doesn't he? In verse 4, it's a variation on that famous maxim, familiarity breeds contempt, isn't it? Look down in verse 4. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor without honor. We sometimes visit a play park which is right by a train line and it's a little journey away. And you can tell who the locals are in that park because the locals don't even flinch when a train goes roaring past right there. Whereas me and my children, we stand up, train! And then all the locals look at us like, who are you? You see, familiarity for them breeds contempt. Who are these newbies excited about a train? We see them all the time, they say. Familiarity breeds contempt. I remember watching a school play as a teacher with disbelief as one of the quietest members of my class had a starring role in the play. 
and I couldn't quite compute it. Familiarity had bred contempt for that small child, and I hadn't seen the talent before my eyes. Notice the threefold emphasis Jesus gives in these verses to really hammer home his take on this particular proverb. He says, in his own town. He says, in his, with his own relatives. In his own home. The point's clear, isn't it? The place where Jesus should have been honored above all else, he's looked down on. Now, Jesus is in good company in the Bible. We don't have to think very hard or for very long, to think of other prophets in the Old Testament for whom the same was true. Think of Noah, who preaches his heart out but is ignored by his own people of the flood that's coming. Think of Elijah, who's hunted down by his own monarchs, Ahab and Jezebel. Think of Jeremiah and Isaiah bringing messages of judgment to God's people, and they ignore them. And in Jeremiah's case, they even curse him and beat him and imprison him. What's the root issue? What's the root issue? Well, we find it right at the end, don't we, in verse 6. And he, that is Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. You see, at, at the end of the day, the problem is this. They don't trust Jesus. It's as though they say, Jesus, we trusted you with our wood, but not with our lives. We trusted you to turn a good doorknob, but not to turn my life upside down, not to love you with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. No thanks. Their faith is lacking. And notice that this isn't Jesus pulling up the drawbridge, but it's them by their faithlessness missing out what Jesus is is longing to do amongst them. You see, in verse 5, he seems to find some people whom he can lay his hands on. He lays his hands on a few sick people and he heals them. There's a delicious irony, isn't there, in that verse? I mean, about who else could it be said that they couldn't do any miracles there except heal a few people completely and totally and utterly? But verse 6 gives us Jesus' general impression of this place, doesn't it? The Nazarenes are a people of little faith. They lack faith. They look down on Jesus, the woodworker, the son of Mary, the ordinary boy. Who does he think he is coming here and telling us all this wisdom, doing all these remarkable things. Doesn't he know he learnt it all from me anyway? They're full of pride and arrogance. They're bewildered. They don't trust Jesus. They look down on him. They aren't scolded for having too little faith, actually, are they? They're scolded for their lack of faith. They just do not trust him. It might be tempting to look at this account and and make out that the problem was their small faith, as if if they just had a little bit more faith, Jesus could have done more miracles. But the problem was their lack of faith. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe. They had Jesus in front of them, but they looked down on him. And did you notice what Mark says? I think this is the most cutting part. It really struck me. Mark says Jesus couldn't help them. He couldn't help them. Verse 5, he could not do any miracles there. The people were making themselves unhelpable. As they looked down on Jesus, he was unable to serve them, unable to heal them, unable to work amongst them. We should take this account, I think, as a warning. 
Jesus can have nothing to do with somebody who puts themselves above him. Jesus can have nothing to do with somebody who looks down on him. Jesus can have nothing to do with someone who only lets him be a passenger in their life. The Nazarenes look down on Jesus. But in contrast, we see the approach of the disciples, don't we, in the next few verses. Because the disciples look up to Jesus. Up. They don't have a tremendous track record so far in Mark's Gospel. I don't know if you've spotted that as we've read. You see, they don't understand Jesus' teaching in the parable of the sower. They don't trust him to look after them when they're traveling in a boat across the lake in the calming of the storm. They're not sensitive to Jesus' extraordinary perception of the woman who's touched him in the crowd. They try and persuade him that it's just all the folk crowding around him. It's not that any power's gone out of him or anything like that. They don't understand that about Jesus either. And yet it's to these men that Jesus entrusts his mission. Why is that? Well, because whatever their limitations, and they're many, and whatever their weaknesses, and they're obvious, and whatever their failings, and they are and will be monumental, won't they, as we read the gospel? They do have one thing, and that thing is faith. Remember, they left everything to follow Jesus. They trusted him. They looked up to him. And when someone trusts Jesus, then remarkable things happen. I wonder if you saw that in that account of Jesus sending out the twelve. They're given authority to cast out evil spirits by Jesus. They do what he says. They travel light like he instructs them to. And they copy him. They copy Jesus in the pattern of his ministry. Just as Jesus will shortly leave his hometown alone as, as a place which hasn't welcomed him. So Jesus tells the disciples, leave well alone any place that doesn't welcome them. And the results? Well, they're remarkable, aren't they? Verse 12, they went out and preached, just as Jesus has been preaching, that people should repent and turn back to God. And it's accompanied by many signs, the driving out of demons, the healing of many who wail. So the method of the disciples and the results that accompany them Well, they look just like Jesus, don't they? They are imitating Christ, and his power goes with them to enable them to do all that they do. And they're enabled to do that because rather than looking down on Jesus in contempt, they look up to him, and they trust him as their master and their Lord. What a difference. Well, the disciples occupy a unique role, don't they, in God's unfolding plan of salvation. And the implication of this passage, I don't think, is to lift what we see the disciples doing here and expect us to to copy and, and do exactly the same as what they're doing. Their ministry was fairly remarkable, wasn't it? It was fairly unique in many ways. But neither should we miss the basic point of these verses. Here are these weak, failing, limited men. And they receive power from Jesus to live like him, to speak like him, to do the things he was doing. And you know, Jesus still calls ordinary men and women to follow him, to be empowered by his spirit and to go and make a difference in the world, to do as he did, to speak as he spoke, to live as he lived. And the requirement is the same requirement that it was for the disciples back then, to trust him, to have faith in him, 
to look up to him. Well, as we come to a close, let me try and apply this idea, this basic idea, looking up to Jesus on on three levels. Let me talk firstly about our society, our society. Because I don't know about you, but I don't think it's any wonder that in our hyper-individualistic, authority-wary culture, there's a lot of words there, but you get the idea, okay, where you can be your own boss and create your own meaning, that it seems like Jesus has increasingly less influence. I don't think it should be a surprise to us. You see, in a world where no one wants anybody to be in authority over them, and where parents feel pressure to be their child's best mate rather than their well, parent, in a culture where such attitudes are so widespread and common, would it be too far to say that Jesus cannot do much among us? Just as he could not do much in his own hometown? I don't think, I'm not talking here about the people in this building necessarily, but people out there in the town. I don't think it's particularly out there that everybody hates Jesus, is it? per se, not per se, it's just they haven't given him a second thought. Why would they? The idea of anybody telling them what to do or how to live is so alien in the spirit of the age. What can we do in response? What can we do as we think about our society and our culture? What can we do but pray? To pray for our society, to pray for our culture, to pray for Harpenden, to pray that we would be lifted out of ourselves and be willing to accept the gracious and good instruction and care and love of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the universe. Let us think as a church, as a church, of course the church ought to be the place full of people like the disciples, uh, failing people, inconsistent people, troubled people, limited people, weak people, people, but people nonetheless who in some measure, maybe they're just looking into things for the very first time, maybe they're committed themselves, but whatever stage they're at, in some level, they look up to Jesus, they want to hear more from him, they're keen to trust him, and they go out to live Jesus' lives and do Jesus' deeds and speak Jesus' words in the power of Jesus' spirit. That's how the church ought to be, weak people rejoicing in the strength that Christ gives so how we should repent then for when we as the church behave rather as the strong people grateful for Jesus' assistance to make us even better than we already were we must repent for the times when our faith lies in our strategy and our vision and our leadership and our events and our prayer and our preaching and our program and not in him We should repent. It's the message of Jesus, isn't it? To repent. Repent for the times when we treat Jesus as our sidekick rather than our Lord. When we ask him to simply bless what we've already done rather than ask him what we should do in the first place. Imagine the difference we could make to Harpenden as a church all the more, all the more than we already are if we rose up together to put Jesus at the head and went out in humble dependence on him to speak his words and live his life and do his deeds in our town and our families and in our friendships. Then thirdly, on a personal level, 
You see, Christianity is about being saved into a people of God, a gathered group, the church. And yet we're a group made up of individuals, aren't we? And maybe tonight you know that in the past, and maybe even right now, you look down on Jesus. You just do. You, you perhaps treat him like a sat-nav. You know, helpful guidance when you don't quite know the way. But the rest of the time you can turn him off, especially when his voice gets a little bit annoying. Well, if this is you and this is your persistent, consistent attitude, then Jesus, well, he cannot help you. He can't. Until we turn and are willing to make him Lord of our lives instead. Perhaps others of us, we, we know that Jesus is our Lord, he is our master, and yet we have areas of our lives which we, we're reluctant to let Jesus touch. We don't really want him to have control over that area. Perhaps we won't let him touch our bank accounts. Would it be too far to say that Jesus cannot do much with our contentment in life and our satisfaction in our material blessings if we won't let him be Lord of our wallets? We'll never experience satisfaction in our relationships if we, if we don't listen to Jesus about the place of marriage and the necessity of, on, of, of honesty in relationships and, and the place of sex. Jesus can't help us in this area if we won't listen to him. I could go on, couldn't I? Because there's no area or topic in life that Jesus doesn't have something to say to us through his word. And if we're too proud to listen to him, if we look down on him, then he cannot help us, and we will be the poorer for it. The only right place for Jesus to be in the pecking order of life is right at the top. He's the Lord of history. He's the creator of the world. He's the eternal God who uses his power for our good. And so I think the call from this passage is to listen to him and to obey him and to submit to him to look up to him. And just as the disciples, those first disciples discovered, and as disciples all through the ages have discovered ever since, a life of extraordinary blessing and power and fruitfulness is ours. Now and into eternity. Let's pray as we come to a close. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his ministry around Galilee, those hundreds and thousands of years ago, which have rippled down the ages to us today. We pray that you may help us to be those who look up to him, who trust him, and who go out in his power, equipped to make a difference in this your world. Father, we ask that you may help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with each other, that we may put Jesus right at the head of every decision and every part of our life. And we pray that it may be to his honour and his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Constant reminder of how much taller you are. Though. It's a good reminder, isn't it, of the fact that we need 
to put the Lord Jesus Christ at number one um, and honour him in our lives if he's going to do all in our lives and through us that he would have us do. Uh, We have treasure, don't we, from the Lord our God to take out to the world just like the disciples did. And so we're going to sing of that now Uh, and then we'll close in prayer. So let's stand to sing. Thank you.